Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. This episode, Tom talks about his new children's book. We talk about the Spanish kiss, new ISO standards around investigations. We take a look at the 3M FCPA enforcement action. And of course, Florida Man makes a dramatic appearance all on this week's episode. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grant-Hart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox. This week, we're covering whether China has outlawed due diligence, the new ISO internal investigation standard, Tom's brand new children's book, yay, and Florida man whose hand was caught in the fentanyl cookie jar. But first, Tom, how have you been? How's your week been? And what has been the most interesting development? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, the most interesting development. I think it is uh, something actually you touched on, which has been the, res- the response or reception to my second children's book. And I had, as I mentioned, my second one, first one came out in December. I was completely unprepared for the response then. And frankly, I'm apparently still as unprepared. <laughs> the response now, uh, these are really resonating with the compliance community. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the book, but uh, obviously very, very pleased and surprised, but uh, I guess as surprised uh, as pleased. Love that. All right. Where do we start today? Maybe ISO? ISO, yes. So this story comes to us from the... Um, FCPA blog and uh, Carlos Ayers, a good friend from Sao Paulo, as well as his colleague, Joyce Sarah, uh, wrote an article for the FCPA blog about the ISO standard for internal investigations. And whereas I think, Christy, many people in your shoes feel like, um, well, I wouldn't say feel like, I would say you know how to do an internal investigation inside and out. Anytime you can put some standards or rigor around it, I think it's a good thing. Um, And I will go back. If you recall, once upon a time, we debated uh, ISO 37001 uh, way back when. Uh, So I was pleased to see this, not for people like you or more senior compliance professionals who may have to engage in investigations, but to get some standards that compliance professionals can utilize, particularly in-house, to set investigation protocols because uh, they're not always going to call a Christie Grant Hart. It may be uh, a uh, incident that is smaller, lesser, less important, less tending towards a criminal law violation that the investigative team, whether HR, whether compliance, whether legal can handle in-house. And the important thing there is that you have consistency in your investigation protocol. Uh, I think it was in 0708, 09, 
uh, at an event, I heard a presentation on writing an investigation protocol, and it struck me how important that is if you're in an international organization and you have multiple people across uh, the organization doing so. So uh, for that reason, I think it's good, um, and uh, I think it can help bring a little standardization rigor, and those tie into two of my favorite topics, which are institutional justice and institutional fairness. Institutional justice, one of the components to me means that not only do you treat everyone the same, but you do investigations the same. And that's true if it's Brazil on expense account fraud. It's true if it's your top salesman in the United States with some other issue. Um, it's true in Spain if you get a Spanish kiss. So whatever it may be, uh, I think it's important to have a standard and some rigor around your protocol. So for that reason, I applaud not only uh, this new initiative by ISO, but also Carlos's uh, article uh, bringing it to us. Yeah, I mean, the ISO, we still do ISO work in the ISO uh, 37001 anti-bribery certifying standards. So there's two different kinds of standards that ISO puts out, one of which is a certification standard, one of which is not. So this is not a certification standard. Um, I think it's incredibly useful that the number of companies that we go to where even if their compliance team has been trained on investigations, management and protocol, so often the HR team has not and they don't have that rigor and they don't have the training. And I think that ISO standards, which really do look at best practices globally, uh, have the opportunity to train people in a really beneficial and powerful way. So congratulations, ISO. We love that. Um, we're going to move to, oh, go ahead, please, Tom. No, no. Uh, well, I was going to say next up, we have a yet another article from the FCPA blog, somewhat related to investigations, but maybe takes things in a different way. So Christy, what did else did you have for us from the FCPA blog? I have a nightmare from the FCPA blog, and it's not because the FCPA blog did anything wrong. It's that this article is absolutely terrifying to me. Um, it is titled, Has China Outlawed Due Diligence? And there are good reasons for asking that question. So the article details the resolution of the very frightening story um, that Tom, you and I covered in March when the Chinese authorities raided the Beijing offices of a company called the Mintz Group. Uh, and Mintz is a company that performs due diligence and is headquartered in New York. So the Chinese government fined Mintz 1.5 million uh, for conducting what it concluded were, and I'm quoting here, foreign related statistical investigations, unquote, without approval from the government, which was a violation of Chinese law. So the article said that Mintz uh, failed to obtain approvals for 37 projects that were conducted between 2019 and 2022. Um, importantly, no, one, no details were given from the government regarding the nature of the investigations that broke the law in China. And let's not forget that this all came after, uh, after the raid in March, the police made an unannounced stop at Bain & Company's offices in Shanghai, and they questioned employees, confiscated phones and computers, uh, and the FCPA blog article recounts the terrifying experience of a British investigator named Peter Humphrey and his wife, who were jailed for two years and two and a half years, respectively, uh, because they operated a due diligence firm in China called China Wise, a big company, including they had clients like GlaxoSmithKline. Um, so they, they re-interviewed and re-talked to Humphrey, um, and he wrote that due diligence firms face 10 times more risk in China now than they did when he was operating his company from 1998 to 2013. Um, he also noted that China has enacted blocking statutes that criminalize the disclosure of information about business activities to foreign regulators or enforcement agencies. 
And the article ends ominously with a quote from Humphrey stating that Mince was, quote, a chilling warning to all foreign businesses operating in China. Gather information at your own peril. You can become a target at any time, unquote. Ooh, this is terrifying. Um, so, Tom, how would you answer the story's title question? Is due diligence illegal or outlawed in China? And what do compliance officers do about that? You know, this, you're right. This is a very troubling story moving really to the level of nightmare. Uh, I remember uh, the Peter's hum Peter Humphrey story quite well. It involved uh, GlaxoSmithKline and allegedly trouble they were in in China for paying bribes. And, uh, but actually it was something else. They were being extorted because the head of the Chinese business unit, um, uh, someone had surreptitiously videoed he and his girlfriend uh, having sex. And so GlaxoSmithKline was being extorted over this sex tape. And they hired Peter and his wife uh, to find out who, who recorded it. And that's why they were uh, arrested and Peter spent a couple of harrowing years in prison over that. Uh, that was 2013, though. This is 10 years later. And the men's group had employees arrested. The Bain, Bain Company, Bain and Company have had their offices rousted. And I, I, I fear this is a part of a bigger picture or bigger uh, efforts, not the right word, a part of the larger U.S.-China a breakdown in, in business relations. And many people think we're heading to war. Hopefully that's not it. And cooler heads will prevail. But there is truly a disconnect between our governments now, and particularly coming out of the pandemic, uh, where prior administration blamed China for COVID-19, and uh, relations really seem to deteriorate. It is going to make doing business in China extraordinarily difficult. Uh, I was one of the people who advocated that you have to um, um, assume that everyone in China is a government official. And the problem is, even if you make that assumption, then um, you have, you don't know who you're doing business with. And if you don't know who you're doing business with and you do a contract and you pay a, a joint venture partner or other parties money, and it turns out that that partner you're paying money to is owned or partly owned by a government official, that's a bribe or it can be seen as a bribe. So um, the, um, it's going to make it very, very difficult. Um, at this point, there's really no answer about doing deep dive due diligence in China. If there's internet access or other um, avenues you could take, you're going to have to utilize those. It's going to increase your cost, but you have to know who you're doing business with. You can't just assume everyone's a government official and you follow the government official rules. So it's going to make things dif difficult, And uh, but companies need to think very long and hard about their future in China. If we move to a more... Con conflict or um, confrontational status between our two countries, 
Uh, you could easily find your employees arrested on trumped-up charges. Uh, if your supply chain comes out of China or Taiwan or anywhere in Asia Pacific, it could be ne negatively impacted. So um, I think uh, it's going to make things more difficult. You're going to have to look very long and hard if you want to do this business and then try to determine who you're doing business with. Yeah, I, I have one of my clients who I really like, and uh, he's in China this week. And I just, I'm just, I just don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, and I really hope that this isn't a warning shot. Um, but I, I think like everyone had to realize what, what, what are we going to do with this whole Russia problem? I think that a little bit of foresight and secondary planning on China right now would be a smart thing to do. Absolutely. Well, let's move to something fabulous, like your new book. Tell us about it. <laughs> So, yes, uh, I don't have a copy to show you. It's uh, in transit, but uh, it's speaking up is awesome. And what I wanted to do, Chrissy, this actually started with a conversation I had with my daughter about 10 years ago when she was a teenager. And occasionally I would tell her what dad did and she got where she could rem remember FCPA. Uh, so uh, every time we would go into a little bit deeper nuance, um, it was a little bit more difficult for get, to get her to remember. but. I asked her if she knew what a whistleblower was and she said, no. So I described it and she goes, yeah, dad, that's what we call a rat. And um, <laughs> she literally said that she literally <laughs> said that. And does that sound like a teenage girl to you? Uh, maybe. Anyway, I thought about that answer then and I've continued to think about it. And I realized we have to change the conversation with kids. Certainly you and I work in the corporate world and we work towards helping people understand the positive benefits of a speak up culture. But I want to get that message to kids uh, around bullying, around things that they see, um, around maybe process improvement uh, of all things. Because if we can have a speaker, excuse me, a culture of speak up, it's going to make the um, school better, the life better, sort of everything better. If you see something, say something. If you, you know, raise your hand and speak up, don't be afraid to do it. So I really wanted to communicate that. Overlaid with that is the story in this book, which is uh, the starship Fox Nebula going to planet Potastic Friends. And Potastic Friends is my good friend, Michael and Melissa Novelli, who are also in the book. Uh, they do dog enrichment training to help make dogs more adoptable. They select rescue dogs and they give them enrichment training so that they can become adoptable and move to a forever home. So they are going to Planet Potastic. And uh, one of the characters, uh, a teenage girl, amazingly enough, uh, sees something that's wrong with the engine and reports it and saves the ship and actually makes the engine more efficient. So um, I wanted to tell a story about Speak Up. I wanted to honor my friends, Michael and Melissa, for their great work. All the profits in the book go to them uh, and the, for their work at Potastic Friends. I got to tell a story. I'm in the middle of a three-book deal for children's books. This is book two, and the next book will be out uh, probably by Christmas. So I was very pleased to get it. It's a lot of fun. Hopefully, it'll tell a story. It's books designed for children or when my, as when Karst, when my first book came out, Karsten Tam said, send it to your CEO so they'll understand what a compliance officer does. 
So I uh, love it. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, maybe you want to do that. But uh, yeah, uh, it's my second children's book. I'm thrilled it's out, and uh, hopefully people will uh, find it useful, helpful, and or just buy it. One more time, Tom. Where can we get it? On Amazon.com. Author Tom Fox. Title: Speaking Up is Awesome. <laughs> Speaking up is awesome. Well, uh, let's go from something that is awesome to something slightly less awesome, if not very less awesome, um, from our friends at the Wall Street Journal. Honestly, this one makes me sad. So it's titled 3M Settles U.S. Probe Over Tourist Trips for China Officials. So 3M, which is obviously the giant manufacturing company, has agreed to pay more than six and a half million to the SEC. SEC, once more, knocking it out with these Foreign Corrupt Practice Act charges uh, because of dozens of excursions uh, that its marketing team bought for Chinese government healthcare officials to visit the U.S. and Australia, which was in violation of the company's policies. So the visits were supposed to be outings to conferences, educational events, healthcare facilities, all of the things that are supposed to be happening when you bring out a government official. But in a twist, the employees sent out the official itineraries um, for approval per the company policies, but then they sent the real itineraries for hand delivery within the company. And the nefarious employees used personal accounts on the messaging service WeChat to set up fake itineraries and then to plan the real excursions and trips for fun. So, Tom, here we go. Ephemeral messaging enforcement from the SEC. We were wondering if it was going to go corporate. That may be the answer. Uh, now, had the compliance team actually come across the real itineraries, they might have been tipped off. Uh, because some of the real itineraries include, or, or the fake itineraries, they included the English-only events and conferences for officials who did not speak English nor have a translator. So in total, 3M paid nearly a million dollars for at least 24 trips involving tourism and tourist activities. And how did they pull this off? Obviously, they've got internal employees doing the wrong thing, but they colluded with travel agencies. That may sound familiar. We've had a couple of those um, to inflate their invoices. Uh, that included a transfer of more than a quarter million dollars directly to a Chinese travel agency to help pay for these trips. So the government estimates that 3M benefited to the tune of three and a half million in increased sales. Obviously, that's a six and a half million dollar fine. That's uh, on the wrong way. You don't want that one. Uh, 3M uh, reportedly self-reported and fully cooperated with the investigation. Uh, so this one is really hard. I mean, I, I think 3M's program has been uh, venerated. They have won the world's most ethical company distinction 10 years in a row. Um, but really, this is challenging. The same day that this article came out, the Wall Street Journal had another article about uh, massive settlements for the 3M uh, failures with earplugs and protecting uh, people's hearing. And they also have had some massive water pollution issues. Ugh. What are your thoughts about this case, Tom? So I want to start with something you wrote in our show notes, Christy. And I'm going to say, I'm going to quote it. Quote, this one is hard, Tom, end quote. And I'm going to have to disagree with that. Because okay. I think this one is easy. Um, very easy, actually. And number one, you had Chinese business unit employees engaging in conduct they knew was illegal uh, when your SEC order references, quote, secret travel, end quote, something bad is about to happen. And so they knew this was wrong and they did it anyway. 
So what kind of culture allows that or facilitates that or fosters that? The rules around business travel have been established a long time. There were two opinion releases in 2007, which gave us specific rules that everybody follows and uh, everyone knows what they are. What intrigued me and I thought was actually a, a good lesson learned was some of the facts you recited, Christy, gave, gives us uh, and gives compliance professionals a roadmap to look at things like this after uh, the fact. I realize that's not detention, uh, excuse me, not it's not prevention, it's detection. Nevertheless, there are ways to audit your business unit travel uh, and you laid them out, just like the SEC laid them out in the order. So I thought it was very valuable for that reason. Uh, the messaging question in my mind, we have answered in the affirmative. It's not going to be a standalone FCPA violation, but it will be an indicia of the culture. And even though they were using personal WeChat, um, I bet it was on their company phone. So um I thought it was uh, it's an it's a useful case it's an important case it's one that really should never have happened because the rules around this are so clear um I was I was a little disconcerted to read that they are a 10 time winner of the world's most ethical companies because it's not exactly ethics and compliance but it's been announced this week that they're going to pay uh 3 billion um, yeah and ear, an earplug settlement litigation, uh, which is a separate issue, but um, that's a huge payment for faulty earplugs that uh, led to the damaged ears of many American soldiers over the past 20 years. So uh, 3M is not looking too good reputationally. However, even with that amount that they have publicly announced in this very much lower FCPA fund, their stock price went up. The reason Anytime you announce a settlement, you have certainty. So that's mm -hmm. a very valuable lesson to always remember. It's it's not how bad it was, it's the uncertainty. And if you can set your liability, cap it, whatever you want to call it, once you know your liability, you can reserve for it. And that's what investors want to see. They want to see certainty. So their stock price actually went up. As counterintuitive as that may sound to reputational damage, their financial certainty went up too. So um, not a good week for 3M. Um, this case had some significant lessons that I hope every compliance professional will, will learn, uh, about, uh, I blogged about it. Matt and I podcast about it. Matt blogged about it. We're talking about it. It's obviously worth talking about. So I hope the compliance professionals will at least read the FCPA blog, uh, or, or any of ours and, uh, uh, take some of these lessons to heart. Absolutely. Well, talking about reputational damage, let's talk about kisses in Spain. Yes, um, the Spanish kiss, and I probably shouldn't make so light of it, but uh, it is just getting worse and worse. And so what happened was Spain won the Women's World Cup and the president of Spanish football forcefully kissed the Spanish star, Ginny Hermosa, literally on the lips uh, at the conclusion of the award ceremony. It's not, I mean, you've lived in Europe, even though you may not call the UK Europe, not unusual, the peck on the cheek or some other 
form of uh, intimate embrace that we don't use in America. Not offensive at all. Um, but when you kiss someone on the lips, that's a whole different um, thing. It was compounded by, uh, first he said, well, she wanted it. And then it became, she approved. And then it became, well, um, this is just a bunch of women. And he has dug himself deeper and deeper and deeper in holes he doesn't need to. He, if I've, I've seen the picture, so I know he did it. He should have apologized and he should have taken whatever they laid out to him because he deserved it, but he didn't. And now the team has said they won't play for him. The regional uh, leaders of Spanish league soccer have uh, asked for his resignation. FIFA has suspended him. FIFA has uh, instituted its own investigation. On the flip side of that, his 93-year-old mother has instituted a hunger strike uh, till her son is cleared. So uh, we have to say he has at least one supporter on his side. And it's a terrible look. And what you said uh, to me was, we should be celebrate, celebrating the absolute greatness of the Spanish team. Although probably in your house, as in my house, <laughs> it was another team that was pulled for. <laughs> but the Spanish played great and uh, played a masterful game. Uh, it was truly the beautiful game. Um, and we should be celebrating that. And here we are mired down uh, over whether a woman who is forcibly kissed wanted it or not. And that's just asinine. I'm fascinated by the, the pile on pile on pile on pile. Like when is this guy going to get the message? I don't know. Apparently he has to be taken to court and the court has to decide of some sort, whether he gets to stay or not. Um, I've got my money on not. Um, yes. And for any of you who don't know, Tom and I are both married to British citizens um, and both living in America with our British citizens. Um, so we were definitely on team England regardless uh, I think that there is there is a benefit potentially to this, right? We should be focusing on the women's successes, but the outcry in Spain, it's very much a Me Too moment there. And I think that sometimes it's very helpful to have one of these where you can you know, coalesce around something and say, this is not acceptable and our culture shouldn't support this. And I think that the, um, the moment for a major culture shift in Spain is upon us. And I think that could be exciting. So we'll, uh, we'll keep watching for when this guy is ousted because I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen here. So we are back to chat GPT. Uh, what do you see around or what did you see this past week or so around making chat GPT work for your company, Christy? Oh, this was, I, I just couldn't get over this one. So it is called, this is from Inc. Magazine, and it's titled, You Can Now Make Chat GPT Work Specifically for Your Company. So those clever folks at OpenAI, who are the creators of Chat GPT, have heeded the calls of people like you and me, Tom. See, they're listening here. We've been banging the drum over concerns about employees putting confidential information into the chat GPT tool where the large language model would consume the information and use it in we're not sure what ways because we don't know how it actually all works. So in response, OpenAI will now allow businesses to create their own custom version of the GPT 3.5 Turbo which is the AI model that powers ChatGPT. So your very own GPT 3.5 Turbo will not get you from zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds. However, 
It will allow you to create your own version of an internal company chat GPT, which will customize itself, right? It's AI learning based on the set of data specifically chosen to narrow the use cases specifically for your company. So proponents note that testers found the fine tuning for business feature uh, reduced the prompt size by 90%. So that sped up each API call and cut the costs. Uh, Inc. says to start, you'll need to write up as many example conversations as you can think of, which requires converting your data into a conversational model that can teach the AI how to generate correct answers. So, Tom, is this the answer to all of our AI prayers? I mean, this development couldn't possibly allow employees to actually feel safer putting confidential information in the system or allow fertile ground for hackers or allow for bias if everyone uh, types in, why is our CEO so ugly? Um, genuinely, is this the golden ticket that businesses have been waiting for or is this um, more problems waiting to happen? What do you think? Actually, I, I took a different tack, Christy, on this one. Uh, I thought it was a, a step and it was a first step and uh, that it showed we can move towards addressing some of the concerns that have been expressed by people on this podcast and perhaps even others. So I thought it was a good first step. It's not to be all in all. Much more work has to be done. But if we can start having these types of, and I know we're having these types of conversations far beyond you and I, every business I think is having them and uh, we're having them in the media. We're having them colleagues with colleagues, et cetera. So um, I thought it was a good first step or at least a first step. And we'll build on these steps and we will see where we can take all this. Yeah. Policies, 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 people. We need strong policies. We need training what you can and can't put in there. It's really different to get a, a you know an email marketing step versus actually asking it to do all kinds of consideration of sensitive data. Be, be careful. Just keep being careful with this. Um, Christy, next, uh, I found an article from the New York, uh, New York University School of Law. They have a great blog called the Compliance and Enforcement Blog. And it was entitled, Can You Develop a Culture of Compliance? And I was fascinated by this article because it really laid out a way to think about uh, these issues structurally uh, with a kind of a protocol that... Um, I typically don't see. So uh, it asks uh, kind of three parts. What's your organization's culture? Should you change it? And um, then how do you monitor all of that going forward? It's got some questions to ask that will get you started. Uh, and I think uh, anytime you can have an opportunity to, to have this as either a template or a testament, it's going to be um something that the compliance professional can use. And I think this article is one of them. Once again, we will link to this article in our show notes, and I hope hope our listeners will uh, check this out. Did you find this to be useful or perhaps something else? Um, I thought it was interesting. I liked the questions, the appendices with the questions I thought was interesting. But what struck me about this article was step two in the list was to define your ideal culture and accept the trade-offs. And it took me a minute to think about that, except the trade-offs. Um, we've had a couple of clients that have acquired uh, really nimble, young entrepreneurial style businesses that are flat, not a lot of hierarchy. 
And some of the companies that have bought them have been more, you know, blue chip standard, uh, lots of procedures, lots of process, lots of what the young company sees as bureaucracy and the older company sees the younger company as being undisciplined and frightening from a compliance perspective. Um, and we saw at least one of these fall apart because the trade-off from a culture perspective was buying that young and excited energy that has no discipline you know, that trade-off is going to be profitability when they put in controls and employees leaving because they didn't like controls, otherwise they wouldn't have worked there. So to me, I think that that's a really valuable thing to consider in uh, if you're going to redefine culture or shift things, what is the trade-off that you're making? Because there will be one. So I like it. So what's going on in the workplace that got your attention? I like, I always like a good workplace article. So the Wall Street Journal uh, has a new article that said, uh, that's titled, you've heard of quiet quitting. Now companies are quiet cutting. Mm, okay. So remember when quiet quitting was all the rage? Well, employees are striking back with what's been deemed or called quiet cutting, which is a bit difficult to say. So what is quiet cutting? Uh, it's when you learn that you're fired. You're not fired. Never mind. You don't have a job. Um, and by not having a job, meaning you don't have a role or a title or assigned duties, but you still kind of work here. Um, so the article notes that for some companies, it is a legitimate way to keep talent while they respond to markets and making quick shifts in their business models, their teams. Uh, so the unassigned folks are moved into new roles that will be good for the company and their career, but they do have to endure that discomfort time of waiting or advocate for themselves to get into different roles. Um, but for a lot of companies, it really is the slow boat to being let go. And it reminded me when I was in England, there's a, a prime way to get rid of problem employees you didn't like without getting sued. They've got a lot more protections over there was to restructure the department or team. And look at that. They didn't have a role anymore for the difficult person. They're made redundant and good night. Uh, it's definitely reminded me of that tactic. Um, and I know, Tom, previously we've talked about one of my favorite shows, Silicon Valley, um, which is an HBO show. And when the company didn't know what to do with people anymore, or they couldn't fire them for various reasons, they quite literally sent them to the roof. Uh, they would be assigned to the roof. So they would have to go up there. And some people like drinking Slurpees all day long and hanging out and others had massive anxiety about the place. So apparently people are now being metaphorically placed on the roof. It's an interesting new development, I think. So once upon a time in the corporate world for my sins, I was uh, shipped out of the United States uh, to Dubai. And I had one of those non-job jobs. And I was told, you'll do nothing. And um, it was clearly a punishment assignment. And they were clearly trying to get me to quit. And they made two grievous errors. One was, it was all expenses paid. And two was, it was unlimited expenses. So that's expensive I, too. That's amazing. <laughs> it was. And so I got to go to dinner every night. Um, I got to go to the beaches. I hung out. I joined a European cycling group in Dubai and ended up having a ton of fun, met a lot of new people. And um, after about six months, they decided that uh, if I wasn't going to quit, it was way too expensive to keep me in Dubai. So, uh, and as uh the senior executive, a senior executive, as I was friends with, uh, said to me, well, Tom, you know, you can always say when I lived in Dubai and they can't take that away. Um, so on the one hand, yes, uh, corporate sometimes do idiotic things. 
On the other hand, uh, you always knew, at least where I worked, that if someone, if there was an announcement they had been moved to special projects, that was it. They, it was, you know, 30, 60, 90 days. That was it. Special projects was the kiss of death. So, um, but uh, the flip side of that is in another life, I was a labor arbitrator. And <clears throat> in the labor arbitration world, you generally start with U.S. postal arbitrations because there's lots and lots of grievances in the post office. And this was around the turn or maybe 2010. Uh, and there was huge discussions in the post office of the need to cut budgets because people were moving uh, at that point, were moving towards electronic mail, which just when it uh, was starting and was really taking hold and the post office lo was losing huge revenues and um, they couldn't fire contracted postal workers. So they would literally send them to a warehouse for days where they did nothing because they couldn't redeploy them um, and they couldn't fire them. And then a grievance was filed. And so I got to see all of that in action. It was an unmitigated disaster. So you have to do something, but please be creative. Uh, you know, if um, one of my favorite phrases is addition by subtraction. And sometimes you have to get rid of a player, of a team member, of an employee to make your office run better. And um, you just have to buck up. You have to give them a settlement, give them a settlement, because it, having a dissatisfied employee around will do nothing, unless they're in Dubai, will do nothing uh, to help your workplace. And then, of course, everybody in the law department know, oh, Tom's on holiday in Dubai for the next six months. So there. What do we have about? It, it's our first hundred days. I think I think you're going to be talking about the first hundred days of a compliance and ethics officer, what they should be doing. Yes. So our good friends over at CCI uh, published a good article, Chris Audette, on your first hundred days. I first have to say, Chris, I wrote about this five years ago and wrote a whole ebook on it. So. Um, hitting the ground running is as important as you can be perceived in the corporate world. Obviously, the um, standard is FDR in his first 100 days. But you need to be ready to, to go forward, uh, assess the state of affairs, um, start implementing, get some low-hanging fruit and some quick wins, operationalize those wins, try to make wins that are, or rather have wins that are little uh, to no cost, monitor what you've done and use the information that comes from monitoring to um, move to a continuous improvement model. So um, the first three months are an op opportunity to establish a solid foundation of your compliance program and you as the CCO. Uh, so as much as you can learn everything you can about the company before you go on board and after you're hired, but before you take, um, take over, try to get as much of the in out inside information that you can, because you're on the inside. 
getting going, moving fast, getting some quick wins under your belt, uh, meeting as many people as you can, both uh, at, or not simply both, but at all levels of the organization. I've seen people go on listening tours. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've seen people do around uh, uh, the world trips, get out there, wave the flag and wave your flag going forward. What about you, Chris? Anything from uh, you're in that uh, struck you about this article? I just was immediately taken back to my first hundred days as a chief compliance officer and reading things like your book and the book that's called your first hundred days, not just as a compliance officer, but as an executive. Um, and I think that listening to a piece is super critical um, for me. My most important thing, because they'd never had a compliance program before was see was creating that vision and getting the stakeholder buy-in for it. So we all knew where we're going so I can deliver that. That, that I think is a crucial part that people miss sometimes that they need that in that not only engagement, but the same vision of where you're going to go and know why that's important. So I think this the article is full of good advice. Um, I would caution that trying to change things very quickly can be dangerous if you don't have enough information, but I think that quick wins are always a good idea and that that's a really beneficial thing. So if you are starting a new gig, uh, do gen- do check it out. It's a good one. Christy, has Florida man been acting up? Yes, of course he has. How much do I love Florida man? Let's finish with Florida man. We had Florida woman last time. Florida man is back at it again. And of course, this comes from the great state of Florida. So this time we are talking about a gentleman called Larry Chapman, who was arrested during a routine traffic stop. And why, Tom, was he arrested? Well, when the police searched his car, they found 9.8 grams of fentanyl hidden in a container labeled cookies in the driver's backseat pocket. Uh, The DEA has noted that two grams of fentanyl can be deadly, so multiply that times five, not good. In addition to the fentanyl, uh, deputies found 10 grams of cocaine. Uh, Chapman was arrested and charged with possession of cocaine and trafficking four grams or more of fentanyl. And Tom, as this article came via the internet from Florida, I was asked whether I was willing to accept cookies. And knowing now what I know about Florida cookies, I declined. As well, you should. Well, Chrissy, this has been great. I can't wait to see what we come up with next time. I am Tom Fox. Thank you very much. I'm Christy Greenhart. Go buy Tom's book and we'll talk to you next time. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.